0: Aloha, Keakua, The love of God be with you. Well, it's been over a week now since wildfires devastated the island of Maui, especially the Lahaina area. And here's what's been happening. Lutheran Church Charities landed this week, and Chris Singer brought in an amazing team, opened up our disaster relief office. Orphan Grain Tank, they flew in a plane load of relief supplies. LCMS Relief and Human Care brought in a counseling team, amazing gifted individuals who are on the ground helping people. Emmanuel Maui continues to do amazing work. Uh, There's so many more organizations that were part of this. Your generosity, by the way, over $8,000 was raised uh, just in the first few days. Lutheran Church Extension Fund waived the fees so that they could get the cards directly to Maui so that Chris's team could start handing them out. Um, Our district released $15,000 initially. Local congregations of the Lutheran Church released another five. Now, it's all a drop in the bucket. But you see, each drop takes care of an individual, a family, begins to rebuild a community. And that's why I want to say thank you. You hear me say it all the time. You are unique and unreproducible miracles of God. 1 Peter 2.9 in the King James Version would add peculiar miracles. And here's why you're peculiar. You are peculiar because you care about people. You have mercy and compassion. You're taking care of people that you will never, ever meet until you get to heaven. And that's why we do it. Someday when we get to heaven, we're all going to celebrate the goodness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to see one another the way you do. In Jesus' name, amen. All of us were born somewhere, and we grew up somewhere. We all lived our childhoods somewhere, or or maybe a lot of somewheres. Quoting the old African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child, and we all had at least one village. This past week, we watched a large portion of the world remember their time on Maui, uh, the old wooden captain outside the Pioneer Inn, Hulapai at Kimo's. the Carthaginian too, Front Street, the Banyan Tree. It, it turns out a small island in the middle of the Pacific had an impact on millions and millions of people. And when that town ceased to exist one night, they took notice. If that town, by the way, had not been Lahaina, but instead Paia or Makaha or Havi, I'm not so sure the story would still be front page. It's not that those places, that nobody's been to them, but the same adoption, it, it didn't take place. All of us have a place listed on our birth certificate. It's the place where we were born, how long we stayed there, or whether it was actually where our parents were living. You know, that's a whole different matter. Some of us claim our birthplace and our childhood homes. Others deflect the question. So when somebody says, where were you born, they change it to, where are you from, Uh, which is a totally different question. Last week, much of the world chose to be from Lahaina. Almost none were born there. Only a few had lived there, if you don't count, you know, a week here or there when they were on vacation. But Lahaina was where their heart was as they watched the fires rage. And the people cry. As I travel, when people find out I'm from Hawaii, the next question is usually, well, how long have you lived there? And when they find out I've lived here over 33 years, the very next thing out of their mouth is, oh, so you're a local. You're a native. You see, for those who have only been visitors or have only watched the movie Moana, I have to explain to them that I will never be local. And I certainly will never be a native Hawaiian. Such things are not something you can choose or make happen, no matter how much you love the aina. It's a whole different process. Ever since the Tower of Babel, there, there has been a division and mistrust among humans. Not just language separates us, but also culture, ethnicity, gender, politics, religion, food, sports. It all serves to divide people up into groups. You are either for us or you're against us. The fact that much of the world is busy dividing people into various camps while also crying out for everyone to be one hasn't come across as strange or ironic, except to those of us who believe in sin. There are rare moments, usually tragedies and disasters, that break through our sin and divisiveness. They allow us to see one another differently. But it's usually short-lived, often creates a backlash on the other side when people realize that they were consorting with the enemy. Compassion is in very, very short supply in our world. So Jesus once told his disciples, you know, if they're not against us, they're for us. And I got to point out, that doesn't mean that those who are not against Jesus were you know, necessarily on board and you know, right there with him. It just means they weren't actively working against him. Where and when um, we started thinking that to be a friend, we had to listen to the same music, eat the same food, like the same teams, finish each other's sandwiches. I- I'm not really sure, but I, I know... That it's true. The truth is, I can celebrate, though, your favorite sports team without giving up my own. I can go with you across the street to Uncle's Fish Food and and, um, cherish my time with you, even though I order the hamburger, the only non-fish item on the menu, because I actually value my time with you more than I value the fish food. I can listen to your favorite song. I can watch your favorite show without, again, giving up my own, because you are more to me than any of those things. Back when Jesus was walking around doing miracles, the Middle East was no less chaotic than it is now. To get from point A to point B often meant walking through Samaria, or towns that were populated mostly by not-Jews. In a previous lesson, Jesus told his disciples, I want you to go out and heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and then he said, but only go to the people of Israel. Disciples thought they knew exactly what he meant. God obviously only loved the Jews. But there was a much deeper theological necessity that only becomes clearer as Calvary and the cross get closer. Ever invited your best friend to go with you to something absolutely amazing and they tell you no, they've got something else, sorry. Sorry. So moving on, you then ask somebody else, maybe your second favorite, third favorite, you know, and they say yes. Then a few hours later, your best friend in the world calls up and says, guess what? Everything's changed. I can go with you now. Yay! Now you're in a pickle because you can only take one. Then which one is it going to be? The one who said no and then yes, or the one who said yes? There really is something, by the way, to being the chosen people and the chosen one. That's what... Our lesson today from St. Paul was all about and our lesson from the Old Testament. If you have the rest of your life with nothing to do, you can research how the Jews became the chosen people. It actually doesn't start with Abraham, although he is the new face of the new chosen people. Now, this dilemma, by the way, is still very much part of the modern political scene. In Israel, uh, the one with either Tel Aviv or Jerusalem as a capital, depending on who you follow. Um, So in Israel, Are they still the Israel of the Bible? Are the people who live there still the chosen people, even though their church attendance is even worse than ours in the United States? What exactly does it mean to be chosen? Now you see why I said that it would actually take the rest of your life in order to study it and figure it out. Even then, you may not totally know because there are a thousand different viewpoints. The Canaanites were descendants of Ham, Noah's son, the one who was cursed after the flood. Uh, they had abandoned just about everything to do with God, especially his promise. When God raises up Abraham to get the new nation going, the Bible says, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. That's in Genesis 12, if you want to look it up. God told Abraham, I'm giving you and your descendants this land. The, The only problem was, there was someone living there, the Canaanites. A few generations later, Joshua conquers the land, kicks out almost all the Canaanites. I say almost all because some of them escaped you know, here and there and they become a big problem for King David in a little while. Others are uh, still living in various settlements when Jesus arrives. The only thing that was certain was there was no love lost between the Jews and the Canaanites. Yeah, that, that, that's kind of like some of those great sports rivalries. It doesn't matter what's going on. These two are polar opposites. So Jesus is walking through the district of Tyre and Sidon, places he noted that on the last day God would treat more favorably than many Jewish areas because the Canaanites were actually more receptive to the gospel than the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, the the chosen ones. That's a big ouch. Jesus' reputation had preceded him. In a time before social media, even not-Jews knew who Jesus was, what he was doing. A Canaanite woman starts stalking Jesus and his disciples She's crying out wherever they go and and the disciples say, get get rid of her, Jesus, meaning they tried and they were unsuccessful. And Jesus says, you know, I'm only here to take care of the chosen people. And he says it loud enough for the woman to hear him. Disciples are nodding in agreement, still hoping Jesus will get rid of her because it's a little embarrassing. That's when the woman comes and kneels before Jesus, which, by the way, is a huge no-no on all sorts of levels. She asks Jesus for mercy. Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's food and give it to the dogs. Yeah, Jesus just called the Canaanites dogs. The woman is undeterred. She says, yeah, but even the dogs get to eat the scraps that fall from the master's table. That's when Jesus begins to smile and laugh. The disciples are trying to figure out why, because this isn't making sense to them. Last Sunday, as we installed Pastor Bob Mabry at Good Shepherd, the Palawan congregation led a song that most of us know by heart. One of my favorites, and by the way, one of the ones I once sung at my funeral. But they sang it in Palawan. We don't speak Palawan, so we had to sing it in English. So at first, the, the two languages clashed, and then they began to harmonize in the most amazing way. It was a bit awkward. But then when it was over, to be honest, I think we were hoping that there was five more verses to sing. Did you know the majority of the kids at our school, at our Savior, are unchurched? And when I say unchurched, I mean they have absolutely no relationship with any church. Our neighborhood ethnic breakdown, 46% Asian, 4% black, 18% white, 8% Hispanic, 22% Pacific Islander. That simply means that our neighborhood does not in any way reflect most Lutheran churches on the mainland. So what does that mean for us as we try to take Jesus seriously and make disciples of all nations? Let me introduce a different dynamic to view things from. Everything around us, all of it can be viewed in one of two ways. We are either dependent upon God and, and one another, or we are only dependent on ourselves, often at the expense of all the one another's. Everything is either a gift freely given by God or something to be taken Either we own it or we share in it. Notice I didn't say we share it. We share in it. Our gospel lesson is about a mom who loves her child. A child, by the way, who has special needs and no one has helped her. This causes the mom great pain and anguish. Using a business and political terminology, she does not have a place at the table. The table defined as those who get to decide what happens and how it happens. She isn't even one of those who are serving people who are at the table. Now Jesus noting not his own ideology, but the ideology of the world and the church at his time. He points out this woman is no better than the dog that sits next to you begging for a scrap or two at the dinner table. Have you ever been excluded from something just because you were you? It's not just race, culture, language, gender, or religion that separate. We have created thousands of ways to divide and segregate us. If someone you love needed help, And they were being ignored. What would you do to get a place at the table so that you could help them? Rarely do I agree with Joseph Stalin, but he said the death of one person is a tragedy. The death of a million is a, well, it's a statistic. And sadly, he's right. Hitler, Stalin, Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein, Pol Pot. How many leaders have slaughtered millions while the world simply watched and did nothing? Yet when Queen Elizabeth died, flags were lowered, days of mourning were declared, and news forgot about everything else. The Canaanite woman shouted at Jesus across social, political, cultural, and religious boundaries on behalf of her child. And Jesus' smiled and laughter at her persistence was because these boundaries collapse under the weight and the power of the cross. What Jesus did for you, he did for everyone. That's that whole John 3.16, God so loved the world. See, the only boundary that Jesus won't cross is when someone rejects him. But for everyone else, there is mercy and grace and eternity. And by the way, there is still those things for those who reject him. They just don't want anything to do with it. Jesus' death on the cross makes all people one, even if we keep dreaming up ways to separate us. I should mention, if you remember Jesus' genealogy from Matthew's Gospel, uh, Rahab of Scarlet Thread fame and Tamar the trickster, both Canaanites, meaning Jesus had Canaanite blood in him. And Ruth was a Moabite. Now, the Moabites were not Canaanites, but they came to the aid of the Canaanites when Joshua tried to conquer them. And Jesus has a very complicated but beautiful ancestry. Whenever someone tries to turn God into a hater, I know it's because they haven't spent very much time actually reading the scriptures, not just certain passages, but the whole thing. Well, there are plenty of times where it says, you know, of God, I hate. But it's always about those who have decided to be their own gods or chose a God who looks and acts just like they think a God should look and act because he totally agrees with them. In Isaiah 56, not too far after the chapter, which is about as prophetic as it gets when it comes to Jesus' crucifixion and death, We've got a part of it in today's lesson, but I want to read more of it. This is what Isaiah the prophet said. This is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to me say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths who hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to me and love my name, I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will give them joy in my house of prayer. If you get a chance today, read that. I mean, reread that. Did you hear what God just said? When I read the story of the Canaanite woman, I realize most of us want to be James and John, expecting to sit at Jesus' right and left hand in heaven. Everybody recognizing that we're obviously Jesus' favorites because we're so amazing. But the truth is, I don't even deserve to be in heaven. So sitting at Jesus, right or left, would just be an insult to God and the world. If we stop and think that heaven is forever, and there's not going to be a need for us to impress anyone up there, you start to think, like the Canaanite mom. Was willing to take the scraps from the table and be content. By the way, the scraps that go to the dog is the same food that all the people, all the fabulous, amazing people at the table are eating. And by the way, when we're full of scraps, we don't have to sit and listen to all those long, boring stories. We can just curl up by our master's foot and take a little nap. I mean, think about it we're going to be in heaven. We are going to be in heaven. I need that to really sink in. I know we have say it so often that, to be honest, we've just kind of gotten used to it, but we're going to be in heaven. We're going to be hanging out with God and the angels and the archangels and all the company of heaven. I mean, who cares where you sit? I mean, really? Do you really think there's a bad seat in the house? And it's all because Jesus saw beyond our sins, beyond our skin color, beyond where we went to school, who our friends were, uh, where we were born, even who our favorite sports team is. I'm thinking curling up at Jesus' feet isn't a bad place to be. And by the way, the way that Jesus often describes heaven as an eternal banquet, I don't think we need to worry about the food. And now that that is settled, we can get back to all the things Jesus needs us to do. The most important of which is telling everyone we know that there is a place waiting for them in heaven, a place where everything's finally going to be the way that we always wished it was. They can sit at the table. They could choose to be at the kids' table. Or maybe just hang out with us at Jesus' feet and enjoy the scraps because to be bluntly honest that well I couldn't be happier in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit